If you're new with us, my name is Ricky. I'm honored to be the lead pastor here at Fort Caroline. I am glad that you are spending some time with us today. And we love helping people like you reach higher for the best life that God has for you. We know that the world is changing. Life is complicated. But as a church, we are here to help. And if we can connect with you in any way, please let us know that. You can go to our website, fcbc.life, and just click on that Let's Connect card and let us know that you're with us. And if you have any questions or if we can pray for you in any way, don't hesitate to let us know that. We're in a series of messages called Plot Twist, the story of Joseph. We're looking at the Old Testament character of Joseph and how that life was so painful and so tumultuous for him. And yet through it all, he leaned on his faith in God. And we can learn some lessons from him as we go through the struggles of our daily lives. One of my favorite stories from the author Max Licato is from his book, In the Eye of the Storm, where he tells about Chippy the parakeet. This is evidently a true story about Chippy the parakeet. The owner of Chippy decided she needed to clean out Chippy's cage. But she was in a hurry, so she decided to leave Chippy in his cage while she did it. So she took off the attachment from the hose of her canister vacuum cleaner and she began to clean out the bottom of Chippy's cage. About that time, the phone rings, so she reaches over with the other hand to grab her phone. And as she does, she hears this horrific sound. And she knew immediately what happened. She dropped the phone, she turned back to the cage, and she realized Chippy has been sucked up into the canister vacuum cleaner. She drops the phone, she rushes over, opens up the canister, and opens up the bag of the vacuum cleaner, and there is poor Chippy. Thankfully, he was alive. But he is covered from beak to claw in dust, dirt, and debris. And so she scoops him up in her hands, and she rushes to the faucet, and she turns on the cold water, and she thrusts Chippy under the water, and she cleans him off. Well, now Chippy is clean, but he's soaked and he's shivering. So she does what any loving pet owner would do. She grabs the blow dryer and she directs that hot blast of air towards Chippy to dry him off. A reporter a few days later interviewed her about this traumatic event in Chippy's life. And the last question the reporter asked was, how is Chippy doing now? To which the owner replied, well... Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sort of sits and stares. <laughs> and, and I can understand that. Poor Chippy never saw it coming. He didn't know what happened. One minute, life is great. He's doing his thing. And then all of a sudden, he is sucked in. He is washed up. He's blown over. Have you ever felt like that? Has life ever done that to you? One minute, everything is going great. It seems like life is wonderful. And then when one fell swoop, it seems like everything changes. I don't know about you, but life doesn't always tell me when the problems are coming. I just experience them in the moment. And like everyone else, they often take me by surprise. Maybe for you, that moment was whenever you thought the marriage was going well. Certainly it wasn't perfect. Yes, we've had our issues, but I thought everything was getting better only to come home and to find a letter on the table. I've left you. I'm filing for divorce. I don't love you anymore. Maybe for you, that moment is whenever you went to the doctor's visit and you got your results back, and it is cancer. Maybe for you, it was the betrayal of a friend. 
Maybe for you, it was that child that you raised to know God, and yet now they have rebelled against you as a parent and everything that you believe in. And you are watching them go down a destructive path. And you say, how did we get here as a family? Life has a way of sucking us in and and washing us up and blowing us over through the problems that we all face. And one of the mistakes that I think many people have about the Christian faith is if you put your confidence in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then all of your problems will disappear. And that is just not true. Even followers of Jesus face struggles and problems. In fact, if you're spiritual at all, and maybe that's you this morning, you're not sure where you are in your faith, but you are spiritual and you're seeking and you're wondering. If you're spiritual at all in those moments, one of the questions you will ask whenever you're hurting is, where is God in all of this? And it doesn't seem to make sense that if God is with me, why is this happening to me? Maybe that's where you are this morning. You're saying, I I just don't understand why, if there's a good God, He would allow bad things to happen to good people. Why am I hurting? Why am I suffering? I think this is one of the reasons that many people walk away from their faith in God. It's because they cannot square their theology, what they believe about a good God, in light of the bad circumstances in which they find themselves. And they find themselves trapped in a prison of grief and bitterness and disappointment. And certainly disappointment with God. And they struggle. And then they come to church and they hear a preacher like me read Romans chapter 8 verse 28. That that, uh, God can make all things work together for good to those who love God. And who are called according to his purpose. And they feel like that scripture verse is mocking them. They're saying I don't get it. What good could come out of my pain. I I don't understand this. It doesn't make sense to me. And they struggle. And if you ever struggle, you're in the right place. I think in one moment or the other, we've all struggled with our faith. And maybe you're sitting here saying, I've never struggled with my faith. Well, first of all, I envy you. But secondly, I'll keep watching you. Because there's going to come a time in all of our lives that we struggle to make sense of what we believe about God with what we're experiencing in our personal lives or in our community or in our world. And this is where our story intersects with Joseph's story from the Old Testament. You see, Joseph, throughout this whole story of his life, and this is not a fictional story, it is a true story of a young man, 17 years old, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, passed from one owner to another owner. Then even in, a, in slavery, falsely accused of rape, thrown in prison. This young man, it seems like life is going from bad to worse, no matter how much he tries to live for God. And yet through it all, Joseph makes choices. The number one choice he makes is to bank on the fact that God is with him. Over and over we're told in the book of Genesis, and the Lord was with Joseph. And you go, really? I would think if the Lord is with you, you wouldn't be going through all these bad things. But God never promised us that we wouldn't go through bad times. He promised us he would be with us in the good times and in the bad times. That even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have nothing to fear, not even evil itself, because God is with us. Psalm 23, verse 4. 
And Joseph banked on the fact that God was with him. And it changed his outlook and it changed his attitude and it changed his actions as he faced betrayal, as he faced evil, as he faced pain, as he faced suffering, as he faced loneliness, as he faced loss. And it changed everything even as he faced opportunities. And here's the number one choice that Joseph made. He chose to see his pain as a platform rather than a prison. Too often we see our pain as a prison. It stops us in our tracks. It holds us down in bitterness and grief and fear and anxiety and resentment. But Joseph said, rather than seeing my pain as a prison, I'm going to see it as a platform to serve God and to show my faith in God. And that is a decision that each of us have to make whenever we're facing troubles. You must decide that your pain is not a prison. It is a platform for you to serve God and to show your faith in God. That's the bottom line we're going to see today in Genesis chapter 41. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take your Bible and turn there. I'll put the scriptures on the screen as well to make it a little easier for you. But there's just nothing like seeing it with your own eyes from your copy of God's Word. And we're going to see today that you must decide if your pain is a prison or a platform from which you can serve God and show your faith. Here in Genesis chapter 41, beginning with verse 1, we read these words. After two whole years, now if you weren't here last week, let me set the context. This means it's been two years since Joseph was thrown in prison, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of attempted rape. And he thought any moment after having served God and helped a couple of fellow prisoners who were then later released from prison, that they would remember him and he would be set free. But it never happened. Two years he has languished in prison wondering, when am I going to get out of this? What am I going to get out of this? So after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. <laughs> Have you ever had a weird dream like that? Thinking, what in the world? He continues, verse 5, And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Verse 8, So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, this leader of the world's superpower of the day, has had these troubling dreams and he can't make sense of them. 
And he calls for the people who normally would interpret his dreams and give him an answer to help him. But even they are stumped by Pharaoh's dreams. And overhearing this conversation between Pharaoh and the magicians and the wise people, the wise men about his dreams, is the chief cupbearer. You remember? He was the one that had been in prison with Joseph two years earlier who had a dream. And God gave Joseph the interpretation of the cupbearer's dream. And Joseph said, the only thing I'm asking of you is whenever you are set free and you are restored to Pharaoh, remember me. But the problem was... He had not remembered Joseph for these last two years. Suddenly, his memory is jogged by the talk of Pharaoh's dream. And so, the cupbearer sheepishly has to go to Pharaoh. And you'll read it in verses 9 through 13. We don't have time this morning. But in the following verses, he says, "Uh, Pharaoh, I've been hearing you talk about your dreams. I actually know a guy. I, I know this young Hebrew guy. When, when and I hate to bring it up, but you remember when you kind of got mad with me and threw me in prison? Yeah, it was during that time that I met this guy named Joseph. And I had a dream. Your chief baker, who you also threw in prison, had a dream. And this guy, he knew the meaning of our dreams. God used him to give us the answer. And I think if he's still there, if he's still alive, he can give you the interpretation that you're looking for And so we read in Genesis 41, verses 14 through 16, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. I mean, remember, for two years he's languished in prison. He's been in the pit. In the book of Psalms, we are told that they put chains and fetters around his neck and his feet. His beard has grown out. His hair has grown He looks terrible, but he's now got an audience with the world's superpower, Pharaoh himself. And so they make him look like an Egyptian. He shaves, puts on new clothes, and they bring him in before Pharaoh. Verse 15, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you dream a dream, you can interpret it. Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I love this. In this moment, an opportunity of a lifetime, Joseph is bold enough to point to God, to a man who thinks he's a God. He says to Pharaoh, who is worshipped as a God by the Egyptians, listen, I don't have the answer to what you're looking for. I I don't have the ability in myself to interpret your dream, but the one true living God of the Hebrews, he's the one who can give you what you're looking for. You know what Joseph is doing? Joseph is seeing his pain as a platform for ministry. He's seeing his painful experiences, his problems, his trials as a platform from which To serve God by using the gifts that God has given him and to demonstrate his faith in God unashamedly before Pharaoh. And that is an opportunity that we need to look for when we're hurting, when we're suffering. God, how can you use my pain as a platform from which I can serve you 
and show my faith in you to a watching world. And so that's what Joseph does. In verses 17 through 24, uh, Pharaoh shares his dream again to Joseph now. And then Joseph interprets the dream. Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Joseph says, I know you dreamed, woke up, went back to sleep, dreamed again, but actually it's all one dream that God has given you. God has given you one message. And so Joseph then reveals the interpretation of the dreams. He says, your dream of those cows, those, those seven healthy cows that are feeding on the reeds at the bank of the Nile River, that are minding their own business, and then all of a sudden up from the water comes these ugly emaciated, monstrous-looking cows, and they eat the healthy cows? That is actually God's way of saying to you, there are going to be seven years of good and plenty. The harvest is going to be fruitful and multiply. But following those seven years of plenty, plenty, there will come seven years of famine, and it will be so bad, no one will even remember the seven good years. It will be like the seven good years never even happened. Oh, oh and the, the dream that you had about the, the, the grain and those healthy stalks of wheat being consumed by the weak and emaciated wheat, it's the same interpretation. There are going to be seven years of good and plenty where the crops are, are wonderfully bounteous. But those seven years of good are going to be followed by seven years of famine. And it will be like the seven years of good never even happened. It will be so devastating. That's the interpretation of your dream. And then Joseph goes on and he gives Pharaoh what he didn't even ask for. He gives him not only the interpretation of his dream, he gives him a plan of action. Now, God's revealed this to you, Pharaoh, in order to give you an opportunity to prepare. And so Joseph continues in verses 33 through 36 by saying, you need to choose out a wise man to put over this project to get ready for the seven years of famine. You need to find somebody that will head up this project. That'll be their focus. And... That person needs to have people that you've appointed all throughout the land of Egypt in every major city who will oversee taking 20% of the grain harvest each year for the next seven years and put that grain in savings. You need to have an emergency savings account for your grain to get ready for the time of famine. And then when the famine comes, you've got the grain and you've got the officials in each city who can divvy out and distribute the grain so that people do not die of starvation during the famine. Look at Genesis 41 verses 37 through 41. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this? There is none so discerning and wise as you are, he says to Joseph. You shall be over my house and over all my people, and you shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. 
And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh says, I know I've only known you for about 35 minutes, but you're the guy for the job. You're going to be viceroy of Egypt. There's going to be Pharaoh, and then there's going to be Joseph in authority under Pharaoh. There will be no one who has greater authority in this land than you. You are the wisest person I've ever met. It is evident to me that God is with you. I'm putting you in charge. The scriptures say that Pharaoh then commanded that a signet ring be put on Joseph's hand, his finger. That ring indicated to everyone who saw it that he was Pharaoh's servant and he had all authority of Pharaoh. Put the robes of Egyptian royalty on him. Pharaoh would ride through the streets of Egypt in his chariot. Joseph would be in the second chariot behind Pharaoh. And all the Egyptian army officers would go before Joseph and they would say to the crowds, bend your knees to Joseph. It's an astonishing story of someone who went from rags to riches, who went from the pit to the palace. Why? Because he chose to see his pain, not as a prison, but as a platform from which to serve God and to show his faith in God. And notice Genesis 41, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. Thirteen years have passed from when he was first sold into slavery by his own brothers to this point that he is now elevated to viceroy of Egypt. Because God is up to something good in, in Joseph's life and through Joseph's life. The bottom line is you must decide if your pain is a prison and it's going to hold you back and it's going to shut you down and it's going to lock you out. It's going to consume you with bitterness and anger and unbelief. Or if your pain is a platform to serve God and to show your faith in God, you must decide if your pain is a prison or a platform. And the key factor in making that decision is whether you believe God is with you or not. Have you ever discovered that we find more courage to do things when we have someone else with us? That's why your child will get on the roller coaster if they know daddy's getting on it with him. Okay, if you're going with me, I'll do it. That is why you are more likely to tackle a new job responsibility that you're asked to take care of if you know your boss has your back and will be with you. It is why that you can face any trouble that comes to your family if you know that you've got a family member, a spouse or a child or a parent who will stand by your side, hold your hand, and encourage you all the way through it. And as great as that is to have other people with us through the trials of life, they can't be for us who only God can be for us. And you need to know that God has promised in Hebrews 13 verse 5 that He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is with you when you feel Him. He's with you when you don't feel Him. He's with you in the good times. He's with you in the bad times. 
He's with you in the ups and he's with you in the downs. And you've got to bank on, you've got to reckon on, you've got to live by the promise that God is with you. No matter what. And when you know that he's with you, it turns your pain from a prison into a platform that you would not have had otherwise. You wouldn't have chosen otherwise to serve God. I don't know if anybody has ever heard of Rick Warren. I bet you have. Purpose-driven life. The church that established Celebrate Recovery that is such a great life-changing ministry here in our church and churches around the world. You may not know this, though. The man pastors one of, if not the largest, Southern Baptist church in the world. Over 20,000 people attend their multiple campuses in Southern California. I've been to Saddleback Valley Community Church. And Rick Warren is a godly man who loves the Lord and who's grown a beautiful, healthy church. But several years ago, his son Matthew committed suicide. Matthew had struggled all of his life with mental illness. And I read an article, and I've kept it all these years from 2013 from Time Magazine. The title was, Rick Warren Preaches First Sermon Since His Son's Suicide. The article says Rick Warren has preached thousands upon thousands of sermons, but this message was different. The last time he had stood in the pulpit at his Saddleback Church in Southern California was on Easter, 17 Sundays ago, and five days before his youngest son, Matthew, 27, shot and killed himself, ending a lifelong struggle with mental illness. On Saturday night, for the first time since their son's death, Rick and his wife Kay returned to their 20,000-member congregation. Together they faced the questions tens of thousands of Christians have been asking. How are they? Two of the world's most famous Christians. How are they able to hope in God in the midst of despair? The article continued, The Warrens spoke honestly about their spiritual struggles with Matthew's mental illness. For 27 years, I prayed every day of my life for God to heal my son's mental illness. It was the number one prayer of my life, Rick preached. It just didn't make sense why this prayer was not being answered. Kay spoke of how she couldn't even read certain scripture passages about hope for months after Matthew's death. But through that grief, they discovered that God's promise was real, that he is with you and he'll never leave you. That God is merciful and He's the God of all comfort. The writer of this Time Magazine article wrote, Ultimately, they both hold to the hope that God is with people during their times of trouble and that God will raise the dead. Matthew's body was buried in brokenness, Kay said, but will be raised in strength. Rick reminded everyone that heaven is coming. He quoted the book of Revelation. Then God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will pass away. Rick then made a promise. Saddleback's next big ministry push will be to remove the stigma associated with mental illness in the church. 
Rick preached, your illness is not your identity. Your chemistry is not your character, he told people struggling with mental illness. To their families, he said, we are here for you. We are in this together. There is hope for the future. God wants to take your greatest loss and turn it into your greatest life message. And from that day forward, Saddleback Community Church has founded a ministry to people and their families who deal with mental illness because Rick and Kay Warren chose not to let their pain be a prison, but to use it as a platform for ministry to others, to serve God and to show their faith in God. They didn't choose this journey. They didn't choose Matthew's decisions and illness, but they chose not to let it trap them in hatred and bitterness and unbelief. Instead, they said, we believe that God is with us and that God is not finished yet. And in the meantime, we're going to ask the question, not why has this happened to me, but why has this happened for me? God, you've got something for me. And you want to bring something good out of this bad. And I tell you, your homework this week is to start asking the question, instead of why is this happening to me, ask why is this happening for me? God, what do you want for me to serve you and to show my faith? It is why many of the greatest leaders of Celebrate Recovery are people who have recognized God is faithful in all of your hurts, in all of your habits, in all of your hang-ups. It is why the only people we allow to lead grief share who helps people during their times of losing loved ones are people who have lost loved ones and who can testify that God is faithful It is why some of you who make hospital visits or go to hospice are people who have stood in that same room by the bedside of your family. And you've recognized in that moment God was faithful and now you want to go and show the next family it's possible to serve God and to show your faith. It's why some of the greatest people who help marriages in trouble are not people who had perfect marriages. There's no such thing. People who can be most helpful in hurting marriages are people who have been down that road and have found that God was faithful. And now they want to use their pain, their past, their experience as a platform for ministry to other people. Dear friend, how will you Let God answer that question. God, why has this happened for me? What good do you want to bring out of my pain? And of course, the greatest one who suffered pain and good came of it is named Jesus. The one we worship. The one we love. The one we serve. And He went to that cross And endured all that pain and shame and agony for the good of saving you. And maybe today if you need Jesus as your Lord and Savior, 
today for the first time in your life, you'll put your confidence in him. I'll lead you in a prayer and help you do that. Why don't we pray right now? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this example from the life of Joseph that we must decide if our pain is a prison or a platform. And we want our pain to be a platform for showing our faith in you and serving you. And there's a watching world who needs to see the difference that you've made in our lives. And may you receive all the glory and the honor for the good that comes out of our lives as we walk with you and as you walk with us through the trials of life. And God, we do thank you and praise you for the promise of the last book of the Bible. We've read it. We know how this story, our story, ends through our faith in Jesus Christ. We're on the winning side. And good will come out of all the suffering of our lives in this world. In the meantime, God, we will make the decision to see our pain, not as a prison, but as a platform. God, if there's anyone in this room today or anyone listening or watching today who needs Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray that right now they will believe in His promise in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God, may today someone say, Dear Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I put my faith, my trust, my confidence in you and you alone to forgive me of my sin and to give me eternal life. I trust you as I turn from my sin and ask for your forgiveness. And I commit my life to you because you first committed your life to me. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for the promise of your word that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if that's the prayer you just prayed, let me know that. I want to know it so I can rejoice with you and pray with you. You can use that Let's Connect card on our website, fcbc.life. And there's a little box there that you can check. Today I committed my life to Christ. I want to know that. Or you can use that connect card in your seat if you're in the auditorium. Heavenly Father, have your perfect will and way in our lives today as we leave this place knowing that you've got something good for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.